This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello, and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. This episode is a roundtable conversation recorded live at the Destination Star Trek convention in Birmingham in October 2019. There are a few audio issues with this recording, I'm afraid to say. I've done my best to clear those up. You will probably still notice a little bit of crackling um, and that the audio kind of comes and goes a little bit at times. Uh, I hope it's not too big a problem for you to understand and hopefully enjoy the conversation that we were all having. I'm live at the Hilton in Birmingham uh, at the Destination Star Trek convention, and I'm joined by a roundtable of fans uh, for today's topic. I'll let them introduce themselves to you. Hello there, I'm Drew Barker. Uh, I'm Terry. And I'm Murray Christensen. And you are? Uh, Donna. Hello, I'm Ben. Okay, well, what I thought we could talk about today is because we're all, you know, we're at the Star Trek convention. One of the great uh, parts of the appeal of the convention is that we get to uh, meet our favourite actors, to have that kind of face-to-face. Drew's partner, uh, Tracy, is heading off to the bar as we speak to try and buy Anson Mount another triple... uh, Triple whiskey was it? Is, 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 he's been getting off her all weekend. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, he's uh, hanging around the bar a lot. I see. I think getting a lot of drinks off of the Star Trek fans. He's doing quite well out of that one, I think. But um, certainly, the Hilton Bar is the place to try and mob your favourite uh, Trek actors uh, without having to pay the you know fifteen, thirty, fifty quid for an autograph or whatever to get your couple of minutes with them. But I was just thinking, maybe we could talk about. Um, what those experiences are like for us, but also how we see that kind of playing out in Star Trek, how we see, um, I'm thinking of saying First Contact, uh, Zephram Cochran and the way the Star Trek characters revere him as this kind of historical character. Typically, it is kind of historical characters. We see them having that interaction with um, Janeway, with Leonardo da Vinci, uh, you know, on the holodeck, uh, Data with, you know, not only Isaac Newton, but Stephen Hawking, of course, you know, these kind of fanboy, fangirl moments um, and how Star Trek sort of plays out those fantasies one way or another. One of, uh, not actually historic characters, but one of the ones that came to my mind was uh, in Trials and Tribulations, um, Dax fangirls heavily over a lot of the TOS crew, but in particular Spock. She also remembers a small affair with McCoy, but it's really nice to see her kind of going, oh, but come on, can I not just go and talk to him? And Cisco's like, no, you totally can't. And then 
what does Cisco end up doing at the end? He goes for the autograph, doesn't he? So I, I really just quite like, you know, we've all fangirled. If you were, you know, if Leonard Nimoy was still alive and here, and you saw him standing there, you should have gone and talked to him. And that's exactly where we got. And I think with that, with that, it's so relatable in that situation to see, particularly with her fangirling over um, T West cast members. I just thought that was brilliant. Absolutely, and I think that episode is itself such a kind of fan uh, sort of, you know, they always talk about the last episode of um, Enterprise as this love letter uh, to the fans. You know, that, that one is genuinely a love letter to the original series, I think, and you can really tell that the writers of Deep Space Nine have that real genuine passion and that real love for the original series that they're kind of playing out there one way or another. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the other one that springs to mind is obviously Sherlock Holmes and Data. I mean, as a, a classic character for him, really, like what, a Data becoming Holmes. Yeah, obviously, Holmes is very logical, using a lot of deduction on his uh, to solve all the, the crimes that he does. It's not surprising, really, that Data would hold Holmes in high esteem, I think. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting point. I mean, we see quite a lot of the sort of passions of Star Trek's characters in a way. That's one of the ways that we get to know them is often through these slightly frivolous things in a way. I mean, Data's love of Sherlock Holmes is played as slightly ridiculous in some ways. It's very over the top. He's quite a bad Sherlock Holmes, if you know what I mean. I'm sure Brent Spiner could play a better Sherlock Holmes than Data does. But there's sort of always that element of, is there something slightly ridiculous? Is there something, as you were saying, that, you know, in the presence of your hero, you become... Uh, overawed, you become ridiculous, you become Barclay in First Contact, who is so in awe of Zephyr and Cochrane, he can't quite cope. Geordie is the one, like your wife, Drew, going up to Anson Mount at the bar to trying to play it cool. You know, Geordie's the one kind of styling it out. But at the same time, he's actually equally uh, in awe and equally sort of, in some ways, in danger of making a fool of himself, or at least of sort of trying to like manage that interaction where you know that you, uh, you know that there is a kind of imbalance that these people mean something to you that you've been you feel you know them but you don't quite know them all these kind of strange uh sort of ambivalences one way or another uh the one that comes while it's a fictional character is buck Mackay and captain cisco you know he's completely in the episode even though it's not the real buck Mackay, he's still enthralled by him you know what i mean Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, and, and Buck Bakai is, is an interesting example of a character who is fictional, I suppose. Some, sometimes when we have historical characters in Star Trek that have that kind of role, they are real world historic, you know, someone like Amelia Earhart. Okay, we know about that person. We know sort of what they represent. They are quite sort of heroic characters. Buck Bakai, they went and invented a completely fictitious person uh, for them all to look up to. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm a huge fan of the uh, the whole interaction between um, O'Brien and Bashir, and their just love of the uh, the, the hollow deck, and I mean the the way they fall in love with all of these different uh, historical battles and characters, and it's it's delightful to just see their their childish passion just sort of come out, and they go, this is this is playtime. I have one hour between my shift ending and the missus needing me home, and I'm going to run to the hollow deck with my best mate, and we're just going to be enthralled by whatever whatever simulation or whatever scenario we're putting ourselves into it's really yeah it's very entertaining I mean there are tons of examples that I can kind of think of but the one thing that kind of draws to me is one great aspect of this is that they constantly come back to things that we can kind of relate in Star Trek so the Sherlock Holmes a little bit of Shakespeare from time to time not only gives the characters personality but I think that's what makes us enjoy them so much and and it's all these bits of pieces that we kind of think you know this this creates this little Star Trek culture that we enjoy so much I think 
Is part of it about this, there's something sort of larger than life about it? I mean, you get that on the holodeck. I think often with the holodeck, it's about playing in a particular genre. So it's, you know, for Picard, it's the kind of hard-boiled detective drama. Uh, for O'Brien and Bashir, it does seem like a different historical kind of battle every week, pretty much. They're kind of working their way through it all. But I wonder whether there's something quite specific when it's not just, say, when you have Janeway and Leonardo, it's not just a kind of action-adventure story. It's, it's not like it's not a game, exactly. It's more about her having a genuine relationship, really, with that character. And what can she learn from that character? He's almost... He, she sort of turns him into a kind of mentor of sorts. But at the same time, there is this sense that she's chosen to go and hang out with this man who obviously inspires her greatly as a scientist, you, you know, as a kind of brilliant thinker. What You know, what is that... Sort of what is that about? And also, what would we... You know, how it's, it's sort of hard to imagine because obviously we don't have access to a holodeck. We do have these interactions, uh, you know, one way or another with the people that we admire from afar and, and whether they work out. I guess the holodeck character is never going to, uh, you know, give you the cold shoulder or tell you, leave me alone, I'm trying to, you know, eat my dinner or whatever it is. If it does give you the cold shoulder, you don't really care too much because it's the hologram. So you're, yeah, exactly. You're sort of, you're willing to push your luck a little bit and I think that gives you a sense of freedom. One of the interesting things with the difference between a holodeck and real characters is the difference between Janeway with Leonardo, where it's very much a she's made a virtual mentor, possibly because as the captain in a particularly troubling situation, she can't necessarily go and chat to all her gripes about, you know, how Chakotay's really wound her up this week. It's really ticked her off, and she can't go and talk to Tuvok about that. She probably could. Tuvok, I could be cool with it, but... But she can do that with um, Da Vinci. But she also, remember, had her meeting with Amelia Earhart, as you mentioned. And that was very much, that was almost drifting into a don't-meet-your-heroes situation because she's not dealing with the idealised version of Amelia Earhart. She's dealing with the actual Amelia Earhart who maybe doesn't want to be helpful, doesn't want to be... You know, it's more like your um, Barclay meeting, uh, meeting Jeff and Cochrane, where they had this great, everyone's got this great visionary, and he's actually a drunk who's just hoping to earn himself a few bucks. So, that's sort of yeah, I suppose. I mean, and, and certainly, I think uh, I don't know about this year. Certainly, for those of us who were here last year, there are probably you know, stories that might emerge. You know, you do sometimes see another side of, of these beloved characters when you see them. Uh, you know, in the bar at, after midnight or whatever it is. You know, you. you you see people in a different light and certainly it's true with Zephyrin Cochrane there is that element of um, I suppose trying to demystify the hero as well you, you know and one of the things that's great about that film is he does grow to become the kind of hero that he has to be by the end of it but it's not an easy journey and he certainly isn't there uh, right away and it's true for those characters you know from the 24th century going back there um, that there is that element of disillusionment. I mean, it's interesting, I suppose, when Next Gen did it with, um, you know, with Mark Twain and with Jack London, I don't feel that there's any sense of anyone really being particularly in awe of meeting those people. Whereas most people, you probably think if you were interested in American literature, you'd be quite excited to meet, you know, Mark Twain and Jack London. It's almost like they're just there, but they're kind of, not quite there could be anyone, but there isn't, it's, it's interesting they don't play that kind of, that awe and that kind of respect for those characters in that way. To be fair, at the end of the episode, Picard did mention, you know, that he did respect his work and did say, I wish, you know, I get to know more. And, and Twain said, well, it's all in me books. And uh, at, at least at least that, that has something. But yeah, I know what you mean. That, that's a very odd episode considering who was in there. 
Once they, you're right. Once they get him to the Enterprise, I feel it changes slightly. It's the, it's the period when they're on Earth in the past. It sort of feels like um, they, they choose not to play that. Yes, he's a nuisance. You're right. He's sort of almost an antagonist. Um, and I suppose that's kind of an interesting choice to to go with. But I wonder what does it say about these characters, particularly when it's the captains? You know, we've got Janeway wanting to have this kind of mentor role. We've got uh, Cisco idolising Buck Bakai and so on. We've got, I mean, maybe with Picard it's a bit different. I'm not sure if there's a person necessarily who fulfills that role, but there are certainly things. We know that Picard has a great deal of respect for a lot of things, you know, to do with history and the past. He's very, exactly. I mean, if, if they went back in time and ran into Shakespeare, Picard would be, you know, falling all over the place, I think, you know. Uh, maybe it's just a question of, like, finding out exactly who each person's hero is. Um, but I suppose the question is sort of what does that, that, that kind of gives us some insight into their character one way or another. I mean, with... Uh, Voyager a bit different, but we have Tom Paris and his Captain Proton fantasies. Obviously, that's not real. That's kind of schlock uh, entertainment. But there's that same thing of like, what does this tell us about that person? About who they look, you know, does does who they look up to tell them tell you something about that person? Does the fact that we're all here at a Star Trek convention, what does that say about us and our, you know, values or our expectations or, our, or what we think is interesting or important or whatever? I feel that every time that this kind of happens where we find a little bit more of a reveal about a character because they dive into what usually is history, but history in a certain way. For Cisco, I believe it's it's baseball, you know, and I, I like I don't know if they still play baseball at that point in time, right, apart from this the holodeck, but I feel like rather than just revealing a little bit more about the character itself, I feel like we could relate to them as well. We could say, Yeah, absolutely, I understand. I see how that's really interesting. And it's also their interaction with what we can associate the most with, you know, for example, in our days, in our time, um, Cisco constantly going, I really crave a jambalaya back in the day, right? I'm pretty sure we know what that's like. So we think, yeah, absolutely. And and it flavors the character and, and it's, it's much more relatable and much more exciting, I think, that way. The other interesting character, of course, that Cisco expresses great admiration for, a historical figure, is Gabriel Bell. But he doesn't really get to hang out with it. It's not like he gets to hang out and have a great time with him because, you know, obviously events take a tragic turn. <laughs> that, that's true, yeah, one way or another. But, I mean, that's a real, like, I suppose if you want, like, ultimate nightmare of meeting your heroes, you know, having to impersonate one of them instead to kind of stay alive is, is about as bad as it can get one way or another. There's actually, I mean, another weird one if you're talking about the people people idolise. One of the very odd ones is when Kirk meets Space Lincoln in The Savage Curtain. And bear in mind, Lincoln has appeared in a big chair in the middle of space. And he still has everyone dress up in their dress uniforms and has him piped aboard um, as a celebrity. And it's he's showing him respect, and it is very much... that's We don't see Kirk fanboy a lot, and that is definitely Kirk fanboying. The, the other one with Kirk, actually, would be Garth of Vizier. You know, and, um, and the name's gone of the episode, Whom Gods, Whom Gods Destroy. And he's, again, very much... But that's him seeing his idol um, in a sort of broken situation. And there is that lovely scene at the end where... He kind of gets to, you know, sort of Garth kind of comes out of his being a bit crazy thing, and he does have that. Do I know you, sir? And it's, it's you know, so we do get to see Kirk a couple of times. But yes, it's who he idolises. And again, Lincoln, obviously well known in the, the American Civil, you know, the Civil War in America, and Garth of Izar is obviously this made-up but brilliant commander. And I think that does lead into a lot of how Kirk sees himself as both a good person, someone who will be fair, but also as. He's idolised these brilliant starship commanders. I think that's very telling on him. But in both cases, he's also very respectful for his heroes, even when 
Now, that's a very good point. And actually, I hadn't really thought of those examples for Kirk. I, got, I don't know why. I don't know whether it's you sort of think, um, that, or sense of Kirk is that he's so sort of self-involved somehow. He's own, like, particularly later on, he's going to be, he's going to be his own idol. I mean, I don't know if any of you were at Brent Spiner's panel, but the kind of running joke, uh, of his panel was that he, he, uh, you know, he loves himself. He yeah. pretends that he thinks he's the, you know, the bee's knees. He, the, it, everything is about how wonderful I am and how, you know, I, I love playing those scenes where I'm playing both parts because then I get to act with my favourite actor and this kind of thing. But in a way, that is sort of um, almost what we kind of come to think, uh, to associate with Captain Kirk. So it's interesting to see him quite sort of, not humble exactly, but as you say, very respectful, very kind of reverential towards another character like that. It's one of the things in, there's a tie-in novel called The Kobayashi Maru, which is, the crew telling stories of how they passed the Kobayashi Maru. It's different, but Kirk's way, what you find out in that book, their version of how Kirk reprogrammed the simulator, which is he calls the Klingons and says, this is Captain Kirk. And the Klingons go, oh no, not Captain Kirk! <laughs> and run away. And yeah, so that's much more of what you're seeing, is we see Kirk as this invincible god figure, and it is nice to see him humbled. Well, it is interesting, of course, you know, we have that kind of attitude towards Star Trek characters and Star Trek actors by extension. I was interested, I don't know if any of you were in the Mike McMahon panel, the last panel today about the Lower Decks series, because one of the things that he said, and I don't know whether this had been sort of talked about before, because I, I don't know if I followed all the kind of bits of information that come out about that show, but someone asked the question, is this show going to be canon? And he said, yes, absolutely, the show is canon. Uh, you know, there's nothing in it that contradicts canon. The only thing that might not exactly break canon, but sort of bend it slightly. As he was saying, all the characters in this show basically have watched Star Trek. You know, they're kind of familiar with the adventures of the ships that we've seen, which I suppose they would be. You know, even like Voyager, they come back by that point, so it makes sense they would have heard about these stories. So there's an element of kind of uh, sort of breaking the fourth wall or kind of a, a sort of meta element there that they are not just in Star Trek, but they're kind of reflecting on Star Trek. And to them, uh, you know, these characters are heroes just as they are maybe to the audience at home but i mean presumably that's that's the reason that um that they're making the show you know these are the absolute bottom of the bottom of the pile underlings and the reason that the previous shows have been made is because these are the heroes these are the pinnacle of of what starfleet has to offer and and you know what the federation is doing in the galaxy uh, so it's it makes sense to me that they would have that idolation for all the characters and this reverence and well i mean we have yet to see how it could be totally irreverent uh, and uh, very, very making fun of the characters. But it makes sense that they'd know and they'd, they'd sort of reflect on what the previous characters have done. Just talking about bending canon, I, one of the big things that I love about Star Trek is, uh, you know, Star Trek Beyond, where they've got the Beastie Boys, like, and they're actually playing the Beastie Boys. They joke about playing classical music and then they're playing these rap tracks by uh, the Beastie Boys with the Beastie Boys in their song Intergalactic they talk there's a line in it about uh, a pinch from Mr Spock so uh, are the Beastie Boys now canon and if so that line's now canon and now now people have said perhaps that's because in uh, Star Trek 4 where Spock's on the bus and he gives the uh gives the guy that's playing the rap music a pinch. Perhaps one of the Beastie Boys was on on there and he heard his name was Mr. Spock and now he incorporates that into his lyrics. So it does all work out, doesn't it? 
it does. I mean, this is that's deep so, canon, excellent. deep canon going on there. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. that's, I mean, and these are the kind of paradoxes that uh, Star Trek wraps itself into because I suppose for three years in the 1960s, it was a relatively self-contained period of time. The difficulty for Star Trek moving forward is that our own world has moved forward differently. Uh, we didn't have a, you know, third world eugen- war, third world war yeah. or eugenics wars or you know all these kind of things. So and and. <laughs> well, maybe we did. And I know some of the novels have sort of tried to reconcile those, those issues uh, in various ways. But there is that kind of... And even with technology, I mean, it's a classic problem, you know, of, of how do you... A, how do you go back when you're doing something like Discovery, like a prequel series, and not recognize that our technology is more advanced in some ways than uh, TOS's future 23rd century technology? But also, again, um, Rick Sternbach was talking about this yesterday. Uh, how do you sort of the challenges of moving forward again and you know it seemed like they could do it in the 60s it seemed like they could do it in the 80s but now it feels like it's harder to project technology into the future somehow it feels like we've almost caught up uh, with like we're living in the future suddenly and we kind of lost that ability to project the, the things that aren't possible now because so many things are possible yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I quite often I, I feel like we are living in the future, especially when you go into like a like a bank or something nowadays, and like the doors open automatically, and like there's like laser displays, and it, we, we are, and uh, you know, yeah. I mean, go up to the bar now, and I'm just wiping my card over it. Yeah, so there's no money involved. Of course, in Star Trek's future, there'll literally be no money involved, so there'll be no need for those banks. But you know, even <laughs> I mean, at my work, I'm now quite often working with an iPad if I'm referring to company standards or engineering rules I'm sitting there with them on an iPad rather than a big folder so I'm standing in front of a group of delegates potentially talking with this iPad in my hand referring to it and occasionally I'll put it down on a desk and it feels very start very much like when Picard sees something distasteful on a pad and throws it on his desk except obviously Picard doesn't work about destroying about 300 pounds worth of very expensive technology but but it does and you suddenly have that feeling of Oh, this is the future, and you know, I, it's. I mean, I do joke. People say, "Where are my jetpacks?" It's you know, 2019, and I'm like, I don't know. I'll Google it on my pocket supercomputer. And if <laughs> if I went back to like 1992 when I just started secondary and said, "Yeah, by the way, we don't have a jetpack, but you'll have a pocket supercomputer that can literally access all the cat pictures on Earth," um, you know, 2020 or 20, uh, 1992, me would be going, ah. No rubbish. That's never gonna. I'll maybe have a, a supercomputer on my desk or something around my house, but in your pocket, you're mad. And of course, that's one of the like failures of Star Trek to predict the future is the internet and the kind of connectedness of things. You know, the fact that uh, Captain Picard might have five pads on his desk, and you know, we already know that that's totally unnecessary. It makes it makes no real sense. But of course, also they celebrate uh, the inventor of the warp drive. I don't think they're cel- they celebrate the inventor of the transporter. They don't celebrate whoever invented the pad. There's no, and no one is meeting Steve Jobs on the holodeck, are they? There's the kind of, um, actually these things that have transformed our lives one way or another. Um, I mean, maybe we do recognize someone like Steve Jobs or whatever. We do recognize these figures as quite significant kind of cultural icons. But Star Trek is much more interested in I, I don't know, not in those kind of lifestyle technologies that in some ways are what we understand as the future, but in these kind of key, uh, Moments, because I suppose warp travel represents something important. So therefore, Zephyr and Cochrane has to represent something important too. To be fair, that probably explains Elon, Elon Musk then, <laughs> because you know that he was mentioned in Discovery season two, which I thought was or season one that was odd. But uh, you could say that Tesla maybe 
made the step towards warp drive, even after World War Three. But you know what I mean. We haven't seen so far Elon Musk playing himself on Star Trek. I mean, that would be an interesting one. Time, maybe, maybe. I mean, Stephen Hawking obviously was quite a safe bet, I think, for them to to go with. Uh, and I think so far he's the only person, as far as I know, who has played themselves. I mean, we've had uh, you, you know astronauts playing members of the crew you know we've had real world cameos but they've been fictional cameos as far as i know stephen hawking is kind of unique as someone who has actually played themselves uh someone from this era but elon musk you're right getting the name check is kind of almost trying to accomplish the same thing but uh the fact that he was able to be in an episode and there's that weird kind of synergy there because data clearly is a fan of stephen hawking stephen hawking is a fan of star trek so it kind of works both ways that's why he wants to do it yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an open goal there, isn't it, really? You know, Stephen Hawking on Star Trek, definitely. And uh, just going back to technology, though, uh, something Star Trek has definitely missed is whenever they're linking data up to the computer, they're always plugging him in, aren't they? Where's the Wi-Fi? I mean, Wi-Fi is such a big thing of our lives nowadays. You know, I won't stay in a hotel that hasn't got Wi-Fi. If we go into a bar and there's no open Wi-Fi, we just go straight out again, you know? It's true. I was quite annoyed last weekend. I I stayed at a hotel where they billed you per day. Like, you had to pay five pounds a day for, or something for the wi-fi and i was pretty incensed by that i think the answer the star trek answer has got to be that they ripped it out along with the hollow emitters yes, for security yes, reasons or whatever yes. it was and you know it, 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 it actually uh, wi-fi was frying your brain all along and we didn't know it that's what it was it was the 5g they brought in 5g people started you know dropping down dead in the streets and then yeah <laughs> that was the point we had to go back you say that but i'm going to get my fanboy hat on here um in a fistful of data's they hook Data's brain up to the computer because it's their day off, and um, all of the pads get updated with Data stuff, so Riker's meant to be doing a play, but the script's now some of Data's awful poetry. And you know, obviously other things like the holodeck change and replicators only produce cat food. So there is some form of Wi-Fi somewhere on the ship, but it's obviously not as as, as major as as we see nowadays, where, like you say, you know, no, no, one's getting, no one beams onto the Enterprise and says, right, first thing, what's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> well, you're right, and we never actually see anyone plugging a pad in, for example, so seemingly they charge by some magical, you, you know, magnetic uh, system throughout the ship or something. I suppose just looking back um, at this, this idea of, of kind of uh, fanboys, fangirls, you know, what it means to meet your heroes, these kind of things. I mean, we talked a little bit about how sometimes that can go wrong, there can be an element of disillusionment. The other side of it is that I think one of the great pleasures of coming uh, to a convention like this is not only meeting other fans and finding out what you share and kind of, uh, you know, not just a love of Star Trek, but of certain kind of ideas and ideals and sort of hopes for the future and these sort of things, but actually seeing the actors take that on board as well. And I suppose that's a big part of it from their point of view. That's sort of part of the contract in a way is that they don't just say, I mean, but they do to a certain extent say, well, it was a job, I took a paycheck, etc. But there is an element to which they have to get on board with that. And we saw that, for example, last year in a big way with the Discovery cast, you know, brand new addition to the kind of Star Trek uh, family in a sense, but totally signed up to all those ideals, totally signed up, uh, very kind of... Um, evangelical almost about the kind of Star Trek message and aware that you know this is the audience they're playing to that this is the way to connect with us is to kind of is is through that and through what Star Trek represents to people 
I actually wonder if they kind of get an induction week where they say, welcome to Star Trek. And this is more than just you coming and doing your job. This is, you're part of a family now. You have a big set of fans and you actually have a duty towards them. I, I don't know if they actually go through that, but I, I can understand they must understand this to some extent, right? So this is probably why Ethan Peck and all the other guys are kind of around the bar trying to just make friends and just trying to basically show, hey, Star Trek family, we understand the legacy that Star Trek is and we are trying to add to it and enrich it in so many different ways and we want to help you get there. So here we are. How do we do that? And I think that's the beauty of Star Trek as well. Uh, yeah. And the, and the other thing is, I mean, uh, name dropping, I was speaking to Anthony Rapp last night, I, but I, I heard him say loads of times that he grew up with Star Trek, you know. He, he's a big fan of Spock and he grew up with it. So, and now he's in it. So they, they probably understand because they were once like us fans. So now they're on the other side of, of, you know, the stage and, and we're coming up to them and they're like, I was once you. So they want to be our friends, don't they? Well, that, that, that certainly makes sense. But I was struck as well, um, in the opening ceremony yesterday, the guy, and I don't know his name, I'm afraid, who played the young Spock in Star Trek 3, uh, talked a little bit. <laughs> don't say that, Drew, you know. <laughs> we, we, we all should know his name and, and we will go and look it up. Uh, or, or, you know, check the name badge above his, his signing booth. But I mean, in some ways you might think, uh, he's a, an obscure booking for the convention. But I was quite touched by the story that he told there where he said when he got the job, he had this audition with Leonard Nimoy and he said, Leonard Nimoy gave him the part and he said to him, I, you know, you're going to be playing me and, but more to the point, you're going to be playing Spock. And he basically said to him, um, something along these lines. He said, you know, Star Trek has been a big part of my life. It's given me a huge amount. I've given a huge amount back. Um, and you are part of you know, a small part, admittedly, but part of that legacy. And basically said to this guy, who was like, what, a teenager at the time, you know, I hope you understand the responsibility I'm placing on your shoulders by making you Spock. I, like, if you go off the rails and, you know, end up in jail or something, it'll be, you know, this will be bad. So, you know, respect the fans. And by that means sort of living a good life, being a role model, you know, all these kind of things, which is, uh, is quite a responsibility. I mean, is absolutely what Zephram Cochran was not, prepared for at all he didn't have an induction no one told him he was supposed to be a hero he thought he was just living his life and you know getting drunk in his bar and you know asking around and 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 you know getting on with it basically um so in a way it's a whole extra level of pressure knowing that you're kind of looking to your legacy looking to the future or in the situation here you know looking to the fact that you are uh people's eyes are on you one way or another you're a, you're an important figure somehow yeah yeah definitely i mean I I think it's, it's a thing, isn't it? I mean, we, there are people we've seen here that have been like in a single episode in the 60s, you know? It's, it's, it's a good way to earn a living, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's another way of looking at it. And who knows, you know, when Zephram Cochran was in that first episode of Enterprise, you know, giving a, 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 his speech or whatever, uh, I mean, did they still have money then? They, they probably did. You know, maybe he got a hefty yeah. fee for, for turning up and, 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 and making that appearance. You know, that obviously is a side of it. But at the same time, one way or another, he seemed by that point to have accepted the fact that he was a hero, to have accepted this kind of role. I mean, it's, it's interesting they brought him back for that episode because they did sort of allow us to see this is the same man that we saw in first contact but at the same time things have moved on you know he's kind of he's become that historical character one way or another even if he wasn't exactly at the point that we met him or the possibility is that 
when we see him, he's actually but un- off camera as his island full of dancing girls, and he knows now this is how he earns his money. Is he turns up and does very solemn and inspiring speeches. I mean, one of the bits I absolutely love in First Contact is when Riker says. Uh, what was it? Um, if you want to be a great man, just be a man and let history do the rest. And Cochrane goes, oh, that's rhetorical nonsense. Which idiot said that? <laughs> and of course it was him. So. Uh, but I like the idea that he's actually on his luxury island somewhere. Or he's, he's been bussed off, trained off it because he said he didn't like to fly. So he's had some sort of super future train take him off the island just to do the speech. But he knows now, if he turns up and acts the part, which you know a lot of people might do. They say, yes, I know... I can't turn up at a convention and be bored of people and, you know, I mean, some some of the people here might genuinely dislike company of any sort. I don't know. I, I don't know any of them. But they know that they come here, they put on their human suit and they act the part so that they're presentable because that's why they get invited back. That's why people love them. That's why, And it's not cynical. It's just that's, you know, a, a decent way to behave in society. They, they play and I say Cochrane knows he's now considered this great visionary so he'll play the visionary role even if he knows in his head all he really wants to do is live in an island. And, and really, I suppose there is a, a kind of parallel there because, of course, the people, I mean, well, certainly the people who were in the original series, maybe by next gen, they had a bit more of a sense that there was this kind of legacy of fans and so on. There's something, I think by the time of Discovery, certainly they're coming to their first convention, they're thinking, they must be thinking in 30 years, we're going to be still doing it. Do you know what I mean? We're still going to be doing this. This is kind of the rest of our lives. But, you know, certainly for those actors in the original series, and this might explain a bit of, like, William Shatner's Get Alive. It might explain a bit of, uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy's I Am Not Spock. Exactly. It's like, it is a job, and it is something, and it is like Zephyrin Cochran building the warp engine is a job. Uh, he wasn't expecting it to have to turn him into a different person somehow. And I suppose there is that element of... Um, realizing that you have that responsibility you have that role like you say putting on the human suit or whatever or putting on you you know whether you see that in a kind of cynical way or just as a kind of uh i mean the other side of it is a lot of them will say it's a real privilege to be here a lot of them will say you know say quite gracious things i mean even brent spiner despite his kind of uh egomaniacal act actually said at the end something i can't remember what exactly it was he said but something kind of along lines he 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 said to a fan he said data is for you now basically it's not you know that was my job i did my job i hand it over to you and this it means more to you and i appreciate that kind of thing and actually then our visitors said something similar not quite the same thing but along similar lines last year she was saying um because someone asked her i think you know do you find it is it a bit overwhelming doing this kind of thing is it exhausting do you find it a bit of a drag and she said no it's an absolute honor basically that was the way she put it and you know whether that's who knows whether that's true or not but i think um you know we like to believe that it is true that they appreciate that they appreciate being appreciated and feeling like they're part of something that is important to a lot of people well, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want to come to work and have 3,000 people staring at them going, oh my God, you're amazing. Like, it's, I mean, there is a, a certain pleasure in that. I'm sure there are elements of it that can get tiresome. You know, the same repetitive questions or, or being stuck in a makeup chair for three hours. Uh, or, you know, if you're a germaphobe, maybe shaking 500 people's hands isn't your idea of a good time. But, but there's still there's that sense of, of love and, and appreciation. And I mean, who wouldn't to a certain extent enjoy that so maybe the answer is those holodeck characters didn't need to be programmed to be extra friendly you know maybe actually the real leonardo da vinci would have been quite welcoming to his fans if they said can i come and hang out in your workshop for six months and you know shadow you and 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 get involved in your activities you know who knows maybe our heroes are more approachable one way or another than they think than we think they are 
Just saying about um, Brent Spiner, though, I think the, the point he was saying about someone said about um, people with Asperger's uh, like might connect with data, and also um, Lieutenant Yar. People were saying that uh, you know people who've been victimised, or someone said about they were a, a queer woman uh, identified with her. I think this is the thing about Star Trek. It's it's, it's an intelligent show, you know, I would say that as a fan of it. But it's, it's, it's got depth to it. So I think these characters that are so well kind of written and got a lot of depth to them, people can see like, aspects of them in themselves, which is why a lot of people identify with them, I think. Well, I think that's a lovely note to end on. And um, I just want to say thank you all for joining me and I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. But good discussion. Like, I love, <laughs> you know, talking about the science. And, Joe, I love that you bring it up. Justin. I need to stop reading it. I'm sorry. I'm closing. Doing Close my the final window. thoughts. Close and the you're window, all Justin. laughing over me. Joe, you need to keep all of this, this in. Is a, <laughs> this is an intervention, Justin. <laughs> okay. Close the window. Oh, my gosh. Literary Treks. I talked to Bob Klein, who I had interviewed for Saturday Morning Trek, um, and he's like, yeah, come on over. Let's go look through my garage and see what we find. I'm like, okay. So I drive over there, and I was greeted to two, you know those fold-out tables that you have for, like, picnics? Two of those end-to-end with, like, three boxes, uh, larger than file boxes, and, uh, like, moving boxes size, and just papers and folders that all had filmation on it just brought out standard orbit i bought it i uh, when it first came out i played it for like two or three days and i went what is going on am i am i missing something is is just i'm not a good player so and then i checked on the reviews online and everyone agreed that it was not a good game and we were all correct and introducing our newest show the line a Star Trek Picard podcast. I, I'm so honored that I was chosen to pick Picard. And as a Next Generation fan, I mean, he was one of my favorite characters. And so I wanted to, and I know how he is extra special to lots of Star Trek fans beyond even just being the character he played on the, on the series. And so I really felt a huge responsibility to try to give the fans something that that was enjoyable but and, and honored who he was, even though it was staying true to the fact that he is 20 years older. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at ClaraGeneMC, and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended already.